But once I started to learn Yiddish, not just Yiddish language, but also uh, folk ways and cultural attitudes, so much of my childhood and my community started to make sense. Just why people had the attitudes they did, why they did things certain ways. And, and that was, that can give you that feeling of awakening to something, of, of awakening to something that you already maybe previously knew. I'm Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering, a podcast that explores the nuances and complexities of Jewish identity. I'm so glad you've decided to tune in. Welcome to the brand new season. We have some amazing conversations to share with you this year. The episodes will be released about monthly, but we may not have a strict schedule to allow for more flexibility and breathing room for myself and the guests during this time. So make sure you're subscribed via your favorite podcast app so you get the newest episodes when they're released. This episode today is with the amazing Rachel Kaprison. She's a Yiddishist, cultural critic, and playwright. You may know her from her column in Tablet Magazine, Rachel's Golden City, or her blog, Yiddish Praxis. When we spoke in the summer of 2020, Rachel and I talked about her venture into the world of Yiddish and what it's like to fill the gap in our knowledge of her own history. We also talked about her new play that explores the ethical dilemmas that can show up when collecting Yiddish folklore. I started off the conversation by asking Rachel about how she gave herself her Yiddish name. What's the story behind your name? My parents gave me the name Rachel, which quite a few people still call me Rachel, including my family. And, you know, I've always been, well, first of all, I'm a weirdo. But second of all, like, I've always kind of had a very romantic view of names. Part of that has to do with reading Wizard of Earthsea when I was in junior high. So, you know, like, I had this idea somehow that, like, your name was this, like, essential, you know, mysterious part of you that like really spoke to who you were. And um, I never really cared for the American or English, you know, Rachel, just not very euphonious. And then I started taking Yiddish when I was in college. And so the Yiddish version of Rachel's Ruffel, and I was like, oh, I like this a lot better. It just felt, I don't know, it felt more me. So I I started going by that. And, uh, you know, little by little, sort of taking that on as more of just who I was. So that's that's the story. It's part of my, you know, sort of childish romantic notions, and part of it is me becoming a Yiddish. How was Yiddish or being Jewish part of your life growing up? Um, it, It's kind of, I would say probably, you know, in a certain way, very, very similar to many people of my age and my, um, you know, uh, the area where I grew up. I grew up in a New York suburb, and there were Yiddish words around, and even Yiddish words that my family used, sort of unremarkable Yiddish words. They were not, you know, lampshaded, as they say, in any way. Um, they weren't necessarily punchlines. They were just part of our working vocabulary. But the flip side of that was that nobody ever explained what Yiddish was. 
or how it might have fit in with our family. And certainly, I mean, forget about Hebrew school. I mean, that's just, that's totally, <laughs> there's no Yiddish going on there. But in the domestic sphere, there were, there were these little, I, I like to think of them as sort of breadcrumbs, like a breadcrumb trail of Yiddish words scattered around that when the time was right, I started to follow. And that time was, you know, the time I think in every young person's life, like in high school-ish, where you really start to think about, you know, who you are and where you belong, both in the larger world and also vertically, you know, in terms of the historical picture. Like, I knew I was Jewish and I had certain notions about Jewish historicity. But once I started to look at them, they didn't really make a lot of sense because I still couldn't figure out where I fit in and where my family fit in. Because, you know, it was the Great Leap model where you went all the way from, you know, ancient, the ancient land of Israel to the Holocaust to 1948 in Israel. So I was like, well, I'm not really sure where my actual family fits in there. So it's at that moment that I started to wonder, well, okay, where do I fit in? What does being Jewish really mean? And what might it mean to me? And that literally started to mean what kind of, what are my symbols? Like, how do I identify, how do I identify as Jewish? And then somehow, really what happened is that coincided with the moment of the plasma revival really kind of going as mainstream as it was going to go, which was it made it to NPR. <laughs> yep. And, and uh, there were a couple of Klezmer CDs at my local independent bookstore in the town where I lived, and my dad brought one home, and I guess I, I heard it, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> what is this? And that really kind of revolutionized me and set me out on this trail to to pick up all the breadcrumbs that had been scattered about and follow them. Yeah, when you say, whoa, what is this? Was it a feeling of like, um, I mean, did you enjoy Klezmer? Because I'm actually not a huge Klezmer fan, but I do remember that being one of the few places I heard a full sentence in Yiddish was in Klezmer music growing up. Yes. Yes, I, I very much enjoyed it. it. It really resonated with me. The first Klezmer that I heard was the Klezmatics and the Klezmer Conservatory Band, which are very, very different bands, but both of which I, I really, they, they both resonated with me very strongly. And I was also the kind of kid for whom music was sort of a key to me. I was very musically oriented, not that I was necessarily a great musician. I wasn't. I, I mean, I played an instrument, but it was more that I, if there was a media, you know, that I consumed the most assiduously, it was music. Mm. So it's not a surprise that I had that kind of epiphany through listening to music. Right. One of the things that I like to ask all of my guests, and I'm interested in in your answer, especially as someone who grew up in a New York suburb, is when did you first realize you were a minority? Because I think that's something that uh, a lot of Ashkenazi Jews come to at different times in their lives. Ooh, that's such an interesting question, because for people like me, you know, for Ashkenazi Jews who grew up in New York, for so many of us, I would say our primary experience is being a majority. Or I would put it this way, that on the one hand, until the age of 12, I lived in a place where I certainly looked around and felt myself to be in the majority. I understood myself to be in the majority. 
But I also knew at the same time that culturally, like when you turned on the TV, it was clear that I lived in a Christian hegemony. I mean, I wouldn't have called it a Christian hegemony, but <laughs> when everything around you, you know, in December, the assumption is that you celebrate Christmas, right? That's the most obvious sort of marker there is. So I would say I knew from a very, very young age that I live in a world, I live in a world that celebrates Christmas and that assumes that everyone celebrates Christmas. And I knew that was not correct. So in one sense, I knew I was in the minority from as, you know, as early as I had an awareness of being Jewish and Jewish equals no Santa. Yes, totally. So it sounds like you became interested in Yiddish in high school, but then decided to major it in college. And I actually read a quote on your blog where you said that you became a born again Yiddishist <laughs> and that your adult life has been spent remembering and reacquisitioning memories. And I thought that was yeah. a really powerful way of talking about approaching learning Yiddish. Can you talk more about what the process felt like of diving into Yiddish language and history when you started out? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I just want to clarify, mm -hmm. um, it, it was not possible to major or even minor in Yiddish at Brandeis when I was there. I was actually a French major. Um, but I took as many Yiddish language classes as were available, I took those. And again, there's sort of a tension inherent in the process of learning the Yiddish language, which is that, you know, one of the strongest memories I have is, you know, our study group at the very beginning, poring over this table of uh, cases. So, you know, unlike English, Yiddish and is sort of like German, although it has fewer cases than German. You have to learn dative and accusative, nominative, dative. And for English speakers, it, it's not easy. It really, especially if you don't have a facility for language, it can be very hard. So there's the sort of technical struggle of learning the language, which is can be quite challenging if you don't speak a Slavic language, if you don't speak Hebrew, if you don't already speak German. German can also be helpful in certain ways. Um, so it was really hard. It was really hard. Like I had to put in a lot of effort. But with the quote that you just uh, read, there was also, there really was, again, this sort of, I know it sounds very capital R romantic, but uh, it really was the sense of feeling very, very connected to the language in a way that I didn't feel connected to French. I loved French, and obviously I loved it enough to pursue it as a, a major, but it definitely felt like something that belonged to me in a way that French didn't belong to me. And I think part of that was that by learning Yiddish as a language, I was able to make sense of a lot of things that had been in the background, those breadcrumbs that had been scattered um, scattered about my childhood that had never really been discussed or I had never really even thought about. But once I started to learn Yiddish, not just Yiddish the language, but also uh, folk ways and cultural attitudes, so much of my childhood and my community started to make sense why people had the attitudes they did, why they did things certain ways. And and that was that can give you that feeling of awakening to something, of, of awakening to something that you already maybe previously knew. That's really fascinating. 
I was interested in what you just said about feeling like Yiddish belonged to you because something that I've struggled with is Yiddish to me has, I've only been able to interact with it through mostly art and comedy produced by older generations. So people like Mel Brooks or Fran Drescher, or it it would be used by my parents as kind of a punchline, or they'd say Yiddish words as a joke. And I didn't really realize there was a whole history of Yiddish being used in a dramatic or intellectual way with like theater and literature and a whole vibrant language and culture until I was an adult. And I, I'm wondering if that's something you in, ever encountered where it felt like it was, you know, it belonged to another generation or that it was considered something just to make fun of. Oh, yeah, for sure that I I imbibed the same things that you did before I kind of came to this awakening. Uh, Yiddish existed as a punchline. It was funny. It was curse words. I remember sort of very early in my process when I was in high school, grilling both of my parents for every Yiddish word they could recall. I mean, really grilling them, pressing them, um, because I was just so both enamored with it, but also, you know, I thought it was funny. I, I understand why people think it's funny. Even non-funny words, you know, were just like so exotic and the sounds were so different. And uh, I, I loved, you know, the idea of cursing people in Yiddish. Um, I also, I mean, I had a very juvenile sense of humor then, and I still do. You know, that, <laughs> that's apart from my interest in Yiddish. And in fact, I mean, the, to me, the, the, the irony is that, yes, there are these, there are these sort of juicy um paralinguistic aspects to Yiddish, but there's so, that is just one, one thin slice of the language and the culture, and that when you really get immersed in Yiddish, you realize that it's, it's a much larger thing, and that often Yiddish, Yiddish is very ironic, but it's not slapstick. Uh, the tone is not slapstick in that way. Um, it's also very, it can be very prudish, especially the kinds of uh, Yiddish that I'm interested in today, um, like Yiddish literary criticism, uh, can, can tend towards the prudish. And part of that, I think, comes from certain cultural attitudes. And part of that, I think, then comes into a sort of overreactive um, overcorrection because people were so defensive about Yiddish, about Yiddish being not a real language, about it being silly or this or that. So uh, I think people just develop defenses against that. that in part lean towards the prudish. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, because you've written a little bit about the social friction that comes with being a Yiddish expert. I think you wrote also on your blog that Yiddish had to die for Hebrew to live. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit more about, you know, some of the 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 reasons that we don't speak Yiddish or um, how is it seen as a secondary language to Hebrew? Well, that's a a very, very big, huge topic. And I I would say, just at the outset, there's no one simple answer. Um, There's sort of a a large complex of answers. There is definitely a sort of, how can I put it? It's sort of zeitgeisty kind of feel that has a lot of truth to it, certainly in Israel, which is that 
in order to create a new Jewish state, um, the new Jew, you know, the sort of Max Nordau kind of new Jew, new muscular Jew, had to take the place of the old, you know, weak ghetto Jew who spoke Yiddish. Some people did articulate it in very, very sort of cartoonish, it seems cartoonish to me, in those cartoonish terms, that the new Jew had to replace the old Jew. I think probably, I want to say, not Max Brenner, uh, what's his name? Chaim Brenner. Max Brenner is a chocolate guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also spoke in very, very dark terms about the need to essentially get rid of the diaspora because you had to get rid of the old Jew, you had to get rid of the Galut Jew, and you you essentially had to to annihilate the Galut altogether uh, in order to create the new state and the new Jew. Um, And that idea kind of continues to exist through the creation of the state and after that, you know, after 48, in various permutations, various shadings, various degrees of darkness. And I alluded before to the Great Leap, which was this idea that many people took seriously as did Ben-Gurion for quite a while, and then he kind of moved away from it after 48, but the Great Leap being this idea that, you know, we are going to create a narrative of Jewish experience that focuses on the ancient uh, Jewish kingdom and, and the ancient Jewish experience. And then we're going to kind of forget about everything else and create this new state with a unified, sort of newly recreated, quote unquote, Hebrew. But what exactly is even modern Hebrew? That's another question. There is a sense, I think, on the part of a lot of American Jews, and they might not even be able to articulate it, but they know it to be true, that if you somehow have any kind of love or appreciation for Yiddish, and if you choose to, more importantly, if you choose to use any of your resources for it or on behalf of it, that is then necessarily a betrayal, not just of modern Hebrew or Hebrew altogether, but the state of Israel. Hmm. And I I know this to, to be true only because people have said it to me, said it to me or reacted in that way so many times that I think it's not something they would necessarily even think about, except when confronted with somebody, you know, like at a Shabbos lunch, for example, this is the most (laughs) typical setting, uh, where I might say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a Yiddishist, or I do this or that, and the person would say to me, well, why do you hate Hebrew? Oh, no. What a weird thing to say. I mean, it really made and makes no sense to me, like, why somebody would assume saying you care about Yiddish means that you don't care about Hebrew or you think Hebrew is bad. Like it, it's just bizarre, except that it flows out of this oppositional, you know, dialectic that's been set up a- ahead of time that we're all just kind of bathing in. When I talk to somebody at Shabbos lunch who says, why do you hate Hebrew? They're not talking about the Chernobyl conference in 1908, you know, right. um, they're talking about, uh, well, they're tapping into something that that's much larger. Right. So I wanted to transition a little bit to talking about your work as a Yiddishist journalist and writer. Mm-hmm. And 
I think I read somewhere that you actually started your now blog, Rootless Cosmopolitan, as a printed zine. Was that mm. your first step to publishing and actually writing about Yiddish and Ashkenazi culture? I would say it was almost my first step. There were, <laughs> I took a class in Brandeis on semiotics. So I would say there's a paper I wrote for that class, which is so bad. I still have it in my files. It's like really one of those cringy things. That I, I, I was writing about things I really just didn't know anything about. But my zine essentially was my first published effort at writing about Yiddish and Ashkenazi culture. And um, I actually put one of the zine, one of the essays from the zine on my blog. And it explains the genesis of the zine was that um, around that time, so this would have been 2000, 2001, right about the time I went to law school, the magazine Heed started. They started publishing. Right. And I went to one of their initial uh, organizing meetings, and it was like a very uncomfortable, weird experience for me on a lot of levels. It was just one of those experiences where you go somewhere and you viscerally feel like you do not belong. (laughs) So then they started publishing, and I remember reading one of the first issues and, and, again, having that feeling of just being so turned off and you know just feeling yucky i remember it being a very uh, like macho magazine yeah there was you know that the whole its whole ethos is very much one of bravado and you know edginess which also felt frankly to me very juvenile (laughs) and again i have a very juvenile sense of humor but this was like just not even funny you know Oh, I remember what it was. So they had a whole thread about, you know, Jewish music. And, or they said something about Jewish music. And it was like, Jewish music is the Beastie Boys and the Ramones, not some lame Klezmer album, you know? And I was just like, oh, give me a fucking break. (laughs) It's so dumb. It was, I mean, I'm sorry, but it was just dumb. It was really dumb because that's the kind of thing somebody says who doesn't actually know anything about Jewish music. And I love the Beastie Boys, and I love the Ramones. I mean, you know, no tea, no shade, but, like, (laughs) it's just boring. It's boring and it's insulting. So uh, I remember being, just getting a a wild hair and writing a very long letter to the editor, um, you know, sort of chastising them about their ignorance, essentially, which, you know, people love getting letters telling them how ignorant they are. (laughs) And uh, when it came time for the next issue, they, the editors wrote back to me and said, okay, well, we're getting ready to publish the next issue and we're going to publish part of your letter, you know, up to this point X, they wrote. But then, you know, after that, it just falls flat and you sound like a loser. You sound like you're just a cheerleader for this stuff and nobody's going to care about it. And it was just so dripping in condescension, you know, well, first of all, of course, because I had just written to them calling them, you know, ignoramuses. Uh, but then it was that, it, that was, it was that exchange that really set me off. So I, I was in law school. I mean, I had a lot of stuff to do, <laughs> but I was like in the computer lab at law school. And one of my classmates was a woman who was from uh, Southern California. She was, I think she was from Orange County. And she'd been part of the like, you know, punk uh, zine DIY scene, and then had come to New York to do 
law school and she said, well, why don't you just make your own zine? Like, I really had never thought about it before. I was not part of zine culture at all. And she said, well, just make your own and publish, publish the whole letter. And I was like, oh, you can do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I did it. And that was that. Nice. One of the things that I admire about your writing is that you're not afraid to blow up some of the myths and stories that American Jews have told ourselves about our history. So, for example, you wrote a piece in your tablet column, Rachel's Golden City, about how a lot of Ashkenazi Jews assume their families moved to America fleeing immediate violence, but they kind of ignore all of the additional economic reasons that people probably moved to or immigrated to the U.S. What do you think about when you're publishing a piece that you know is going to shake up assumptions or, you know, confront people's current beliefs about themselves and their families. I think I'm just somehow lacking the gene for being able to anticipate or care that people are going to be mad. (laughs) So I've always been the person who says the thing that maybe everybody else is thinking, but nobody says it because they understand that you're not supposed to say it. It's not that I don't feel nervous about saying certain things, but I would say generally I'm not good at anticipating what will actually make people mad or somehow I just soldier on anyway. And when it comes to things like that, that column about immigration, that's me that is one of the most important things. It's, it's one of the things I feel most passionate about in terms of reaching American Jews and hopefully educating people, which is that we really, really, really need to think about the myths that underlie American Jewish life. And, you know, I'm not the first person to say that, you know, in every generation, there are, there are people like me who say, hey, these are myths and we need to talk about them. And yet somehow it doesn't change anything. Um, nonetheless, they, these are myths that are, that can be actually, you know, quite damaging. They're, they can be destructive. They can be, they can really help perpetuate certain kind of very toxic things in the community. So, you know, I feel passionate because I think there are, we need to talk about them. I, you know, are they going to make people mad? Eh. Like I, people were definitely, I saw on Facebook, there was a little bit of pushback. People were like, well, my family definitely left for, you know, because of violence. I mean, I'm sure some people did. I, I'm not saying nobody did, but on the whole, it's, it's not, that's not the reality. But it definitely made a couple people mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I also, I do really appreciate from your writing how much you, you, it does seem like you're passionate about filling in the gaps. And rather yeah. than just telling a sweeping story, like you said, to cover up that great leap from ancient history to modern Israel, I really appreciate how you are bringing to light a lot of little facts about different parts of what life was like for a lot of our ancestors for thousands of years and almost relighting their history and giving them a full a full picture of human beings who had a culture who weren't just sitting around waiting for Israel to start or waiting to immigrate out of wherever they were yeah or die yeah. <laughs> um where do you get some of the, your inspiration when you're writing your column how do you decide what to write about Oh, that's a good question. Maybe you should ask my editor. 
there are a number of factors, some of which are practical and some of which are, you know, my passion, some of which are, you know, if I happen to have been at Yiddish New York and talked to somebody and they said, oh, I'm doing something exciting, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of a mixture of things that uh, lead me to write about this or that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sorry if this is not answering your question, but I was just thinking that, like, what's so crazy to me is that I could understand us not knowing about how the reality of how people lived, you know, 2,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago. I mean, it's a long time. But what's really, really crazy is how little we know about the very, very, very recent past. Mm -hmm. Like, even, like, how our grandparents lived and... Um, you know, the world they lived in, the decisions they, ma they made, even just that, the most recent past is is like ancient history to us. It's so inaccessible. That's what really, it drives me crazy, but also I think is what I get the most fired up about, that it, it seems so bizarre that that the recent past is so inaccessible. Do you feel um, like when you're doing research to write about something in Yiddish culture, do you, does it actually make you feel closer or like you understand the recent past a little better are you able to find enough information to feel like you understand who your grandparents or great grandparents were what their lives were like yes yes although I think in terms of really understanding them probably the best resource is autobiographies it can be hard to understand even if you like understand the economic data and like for that immigration column I looked at a bunch of economic tables and you know a lot of graphs that was like the most graph heavy column I ever wrote but for really understanding how people saw the world autobiographies are absolutely key to that end I would recommend if anybody's listening to this and they're curious you can get a volume called Awakening Lives that uh, Yivo published which is they, in 19, well, actually, it was all through the 1930s, Evo had a number of autobiography contests where they asked just average, regular young people to write their life story. So a 17-year-old in Warsaw, you know, would write their life story in Yiddish and send it off. Oh, that's so wonderful. And they, it's amazing. And so they finally translated a bunch. I don't even think all of them are translated, but I mean, they translated, I think, a couple hundred of them. And the book has maybe, I think, 50 or 60. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, the conditions are very, very different. So people have a different perspective on the world because their, their lives were, you know, very precarious. But they, they experienced all the same things we did, you know, of, of just becoming a young person, becoming a young adult, all those feelings. They, you know, they didn't live in some hazy romantic bubble <laughs> mm -hmm. a fiddler on the roof uh yeah musical no, situation these people, yeah life was it was real it yeah. was real so i want to make sure that i ask you about the play that you wrote recently stumer shabbos which means sure. silent sabbath in yiddish and yeah. i saw that it's about a 25 year old performance study grad in, who's mm -hmm. interested in Yiddish theater history and a 90-something Yiddish theater diva. What was your inspiration for writing about those two characters and putting them together? So there's a couple, uh, a couple inspirations there. First of all, you know, 
the circles that I'm in, my, you know, Yiddish and Klezmer friends, the activity or the um, field of collecting, of folklore collecting, song collecting, all those kind of ethnographic, ethnographic activities are really, really important. So the play in part is about the dynamic of collecting and what the stakes are in that. If you're a grad student, and this is, this is in the play, if you're at a university and you want to do anything having to do with human subjects, you have to get institutional review board approval. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that exists, and it's very cumbersome, and if you have any friends or you yourself are in academia, you probably know it's extremely cumbersome. Um, but the reason why that's in place is because, I mean, you can really trace it back to 1947 and the Nuremberg Code. People looked at what Nazi doctors were doing, which is like, you know, the limit of human imagination of the horrors of human experimentation. And they said, all right, well, we got to, you know, have some kind of code to, to remind the world that you have to have consent. You know, you have to have all these things. Not very long after that, you have very high profile cases where you have violations of those principles. In the United States, the Stanford Prison Experiment is a famous example of that. But also, like, just really horrific, horrific examples of medical experiments being done on prisoners on mentally incapacitated people in, you know, state-run institutions. So I thought, well, okay, it's obvious that, like, experimenting on prisoners is wrong. But, like, what could possibly go so wrong with somebody who just wants to collect a, a, a song, a, folk, a Yiddish folk song, mm. or somebody who wants to collect uh, memories of the Warsaw Yiddish Theater? So that was one thing, is that I was thinking about what are the stakes in the ethnographic research that is constantly going on in my circles. This is not an academic question because it's really happening and, I, and I've seen it many, many times that being able to do that work is not easy. And it's something um, that I've never really done very well at, to be honest with you, because it takes a certain kind of skill set to establish a relationship with somebody and especially with elderly people. One of the aspects of my my own personal story is that I didn't grow up with grandparents. So I think that I kind of missed out on that aspect of my life of having relationships with older people. Mm-hmm. And one of my very, very dear friends, Shane Baker, from the very beginning, had many kinds of elderly people in his life. He had very close relationships and friendships with older people all through his life from the very beginning. And as an adult, especially there was a number of actresses he was close with and from whom he learned many things about Yiddish theater. So part of the writing the play was being inspired by the relationships that Shane had with these women and what that, what those relationships enabled him to do that he is now like one of the most important practitioners of Yiddish theater and Yiddish language performance. And in the last couple of years, he started working with a drag character he created called Miss Missy Mana. And it's this incredible combination of both very kind of lowbrow, vaudevillian type material. He alternates with these incredibly powerful, like dramatic readings of Yiddish poetry and other things. 
it sort of inspired me to create my own character, somebody who would have all of that within her of the lowbrow and the highbrow and somebody who's now living. She is sort of a remnant of a world that's gone. What does she want? She's at the end of her life. What is she looking for? And what happens when somebody kind of stumbles along and wants to receive what she has? I thought it was a situation that had a lot of comic potential and a lot of tragic potential, which is Mm -hmm. what attracts me. (laughs) And do you, in the play, explore some of those ethical questions? Is she resistant to sharing with the younger student? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's fast. Um, Yeah. You know, and in fact, I was both gratified and inspired by something I saw at Yiddish New York this year when I had already started writing the play. Um, this was in December 2019, and they had a panel at Yiddish New York. It was Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimlet, Mark Slobin, Itzhak Gottesman, uh, Razel Kalifovich, and was it Toby Bloomsopkin, I think? And it was so interesting and unusual. So they had all taken part in a funded project. I think it was the National Institute of Humanities, is that it? Um, had given them funding in like 1973 or something. And they did this very famous folk song collecting project. They got federal funding to do it. And they got all these informants and they did this amazing collection project. And then they collected all this material and then kind of put it in a vault no. and nobody ever did anything with it. Oh. <laughs> it's a very strange story and I, I don't want to misspeak about it, um, but it's, it's a little bit odd. But the, the reason why they had the panel is that I believe there's going to be now uh, the songs are going to be on a website and they're, they're, they're finally opening the vault, as it were, and finally doing something with it. So that's really exciting. But what was so fascinating is First of all, all the people who I just mentioned are now, I would guess, in their, you know, 60s, and they're sort of like the, not elders, but like, you know, elders, like people that people my generation and younger really look up to, like Barbara Kirshen, like Gimlet. So when they were talking on this panel, they were talking about me being in their 20s. You know, they, this is when they were young. Some of them were grad students. But they were talking about dealing with their informants. The informants are their, their ethnographic informants, people who were singing songs for them, many of whom were um, Holocaust survivors. And it was such a, a really very vivid illustration of me of the exact situation that I was writing about at that moment, which was asking people who had been through very traumatic, you know, essentially mass death experiences, like asking them to go back, to share memories, to share songs. It showed to me that the stakes were very high, even for something that sounds innocuous, collecting a folk song. But when those songs are connected to events that are very, could be very traumatic, you know, it's not so innocuous necessarily. And I remember one of them was talking, was it Razel? I can't remember, was saying that they had one particular informant who was always kind of leading them on. She'd say, oh, uh, I can't sing today, but if you come back tomorrow, I'll sing for you tomorrow. And then they would come back the next day and she'd be like, no, I'm not really feeling it today. Maybe come back in two days. <laughs> it was somebody who realized that they had something of value and they were kind of, um, you know, milking that for everything they could by torturing the person who was just trying to do something very earnest. 
And I, I heard that and I thought, oh, I love it. And that's, I knew, like, I, it was confirmation to me that I was sort of on the right track in terms mm. of creating this character of the 90-year-old the actress who is a human being and has her own feelings and her own sort of imperfect attitudes toward the world and her own neuroses that she's working out. You know, sometimes I think we have this kind of view of the elderly as being, oh, they're so cute. They're like Betty White rapping or something like, isn't right. that adorable? <laughs> Yeah, they're fleshed I'm not into out that. characters. Yeah, and that's so great too to have uh, a play that has two women identifying characters who are fully fleshed out and interacting with each other. Um, yeah. yeah. So you wrote the play as part of a 14th Street Y Lab of Fellowship project. How yeah. did being a fellow influence your writing or your process? Well, I will say, you know, on a very, very basic level, and this is a lesson that I think all writers learn, having an audience is possibly the most important aspect of your writing process. So I'd written a play before, and it was very difficult to get people interested in it. And so people would say to me, well, when are you writing your next play? And I was like, I don't know. I'm so discouraged. But I got this fellowship, and as part of the fellowship, I proposed writing a play. and once I realized it was time I needed to write the play, I wrote it because the wife said, hey, we're going to give you some support and, you know, we'll give you this or that. And we're, we're waiting for it, essentially. And so I wrote it. Um, so just, you know, as an artist, having that kind of support, knowing that there will be an audience is so incredible. It's just it seems so basic, but it's profound. Mm-hmm. So. Being in an artist supportive environment has been, the play wouldn't exist otherwise. I might have, you know, for the next 10 years, I might think, oh, that's a really cool scenario and then do nothing with it. But it kind of it gave you some accountability of well, folks are waiting for this. I, I have to write it now. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the play was going to be at LabaFest, but because of the yeah. COVID-19 pandemic, the festival's being rescheduled. So... I think it's sort of on indefinite right now, which is, you know, you can imagine a huge, a huge disappointment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look, I hope for everybody's sake, we're going to come out of this thing at some point and we will come back to the theater, all our theaters, or I hope all our theaters will still exist. Right. Where can folks follow your work or learn more about your play and what you do? As it happens, because we had to put off the, the reading, on Wednesday, April 29th, we are having a sort of 40-minute virtual online session about the play. So it's going to be called Shin is for Stumer Shabbos. And it's going to be me, the director, the actor. Shane is going to be involved, too. And we're going to perform very, very short excerpts from the play. And we're going to be talking about the play and also about the setting, the two time settings of the play in the 1930s, Warsaw, and also uh, turn of the century, like 2000, New York. And I'm sure that that session will be on the Y YouTube page, probably indefinitely, once it gets on there, it'll be on there. So you can find it on there. And as soon as I have any information, if there's, you know, the play is rescheduled, it'll, it'll be on my blog, which is rahul.blogspot.com. 
thank you for putting all of your work out there into the world because it's super interesting and it brings me a lot of joy. Oh, thank you for reading. I, yeah. I really appreciate hearing that. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's really nice to have you here. Thank you. This was an absolute delight. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Okay, well, take care. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with intro music by Ketza and outgoing music by Gilly Cuddy. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing with a friend or by adding a review to Apple Podcasts. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And to hear more episodes, find transcripts, or learn more about the people and media we mentioned, visit our website, onwandering.co. That's onwandering.co. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 